hearing about biohacking or anything like that in the 90s. What was really interesting is that you start experimenting on yourself, right? So what's, what's really cool is that the, the loop that you have in biohacking, right? When you talk about, let's say, a, when you look at healthcare, generally, the loop of experimentation is very, very long. You come up with a new pill, a new um, right. therapy. Uh, it takes years and years and years before it becomes reality for millions of people or for even for a few thousands. But what's interesting is that biohacking community, it's try fast, fail fast, learn fast. And um, that, that is really cool because uh, you're sort of like treating your own body as a lab. Um, yeah, and, exactly. Uh, because you're accountable to only yourself. Like, I mean, if, if uh, your health is the outcome that you, you want, nobody else is actually accountable and nobody can actually buy health for you. You, you are the only one uh, creating health for yourself. So that well, is really and the, cool. And the and measurements are are a yeah. lot easier, right? Because it's like if my deadlift goes up when I try a new protocol, it's like it's very clear that this thing worked, right? I don't need somebody else to tell me that, you know, hey, we did a double blind placebo controlled clinical trial and this improved muscle strength. It's like, no, my deadlift went up. I know this worked for me. Now, does that work for everybody? That's what we don't know. And that's that's when you do need that those larger trials and those larger studies. But yeah, I mean, yeah. and just back to your point about the 90s, yeah, definitely nobody was calling it biohacking back then. I mean, I didn't know to call myself a biohacker. I was just doing this. And, yeah. you know, uh, so I've, I guess I've always been a biohacker in that sense. No, absolutely. And one of the aspects that you mentioned, which is really cool, was one is that it can give you deep personalization in terms of like who you are and what works for you, right? So mm -hmm. uh, if a particular method helps you reduce your resting heart rate, and doesn't work for the other person, uh, it's your method right. and you can discover your own. The other important aspect which you mentioned was experimentation. I just want to double click a little bit on that. When you think about self-experimentation, what are some of the ways to, what are some of the things to experiment and measure? Because experimentation and measurement go hand in hand, right? You right. can't experiment with what you can't measure. So maybe your top five, your, your favorite experimentation methods that you would have tried over the last few years, maybe some success stories and maybe some failures as well. Okay. That's a good question, actually. That could go on for a while. So I think really self-experimentation is essentially applying the scientific method, right, to yourself. And so surprisingly, even people who call themselves biohackers don't really understand this. And I think, to be quite honest, a lot of them aren't doing it, right? That's why I said to me, biohacking is part of quantified self. So I'm what I call... I even add a qualifier these days. I call myself an evidence-based biohacker because to me, that's when you're gathering the evidence, right? To biohack. So, you know, so really you have different ways to gather evidence. So there's the, the two main ones that people want to think about is objective and subjective. So up until recently, almost my, you know, most of my life, I could only really gather subjective evidence, meaning that you take a supplement, do you feel better, right? You know, something says it's going to make you have higher cognition. It's going to help you with mental clarity. That's very hard to measure, right? So you kind of go, well, does, do I feel better? Is my brain, is this nootropic making me a little more clear? You know, that's very subjective. That's very personal and individualized. And it's kind of your, based on your own opinion. Now, the challenge with anybody who conducts rigorous science your own opinion tends to be extremely biased, right? There's things called like placebo effect. There's expectation effect. There's all sorts of confounding factors. And people are actually rather bad at self-reporting. So, you, you know, I've done, a, I've done participated in trials, you know, where people will self-report that something only improved the performance, say 10%, but we're actually looking at blood markers and it actually improved them 30%. So they were reporting much less than it actually was the outcome was. 
So there's a lot of problems with subjective reporting, but it's still something you use. So it's not like you don't include it. But what's been really exciting over the last five years is now we have things like wearable technology, at-home blood testing, as I mentioned before. And now you can get that objective data. So I can say, as you said before, my resting, I, I started a new fitness program and my resting heart rate went down 10%. Now, I would be very hard to subjectively know that, right? But my, my nocturnal resting heart rate on my biowearable tells me my, my heart rate has gone down 10% and stayed there consistently since I started doing ice therapy, for example, right? So I started doing the cold plunges. I'm starting to do you know, contrast therapy, and I'm starting to notice these changes. So that's, those are the two main things to keep in mind. And the objective data, you know, when we're doing research with people, we collect that in survey form, self-reporting, objective, again, with biowearables, blood tests, or in-lab testing, right? So I guess maybe the, the, that was the first part of the question. The second part is what experiments worked for me and what didn't. Is that kind of what you want me to go into? I guess the bottom line there is the vast majority of things actually don't work. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's the bad news. I mean, even if you hear that they worked for other people, you know, I would say probably, to be quite honest, my biggest experiment that was probably the most difficult for me to deal with uh, was around diet and, and nutrition. That's a really hard one to dial in. When I was in college, I was studying, studying exercise science. I had a professor who uh, really kind of put me on to more like plant-based eating, you know, more into the vegetarian side. And I spent a lot of my life being very, you know, being vegetarian, uh, leaning more towards sort of a plant-based diet. And as I've gotten older, I've become now more of an animal-based diet and my performance has gone up significantly when I ate, is with age. Now, diet is a very personalized uh, thing. It ties into our belief systems, our, our socialization. It's a complicated bit to get into, but diet and nutrition are something that are probably the most difficult to dial in and probably one of the most personalized. And that's where we hope that the microbiome science is going to start to give us insights there, right? So there's a lot of potential that, you know, we'll be able, right now, unfortunately, there's a lot of companies promising a lot on microbiome science, but I think it's still fairly early. I think when we do unlock it though, that's going to be the game-changing aspect. Like that's probably ten years from now, most health decisions will be around. You know, oh, we analyze the microbiome. This is what we want you to do. Here's the therapeutics we're going to give you. Even medicine realizes that that's where it's going to go. So, so that was one big challenge was dialing in my nutrition. That took me decades to be quite honest. So, I guess I could call. You know, I spent a lot of time in a failed experiment there trying to figure out what worked. 